0: Hi, my name's Anita Johnson, and if you like what you hear on Making Contact, now is the time to go to radioproject.org, click the big red-hearted donate
1: button at the top of the page, and help us get community voices heard. Thanks, and here's this week's show.
2: You're listening to Making Contact.
3: I'm Aisha Chowdhury.
4: What's it going to be like 100 years from now? What are people going to find in the grocery store? And my response is well, why should we have a grocery store?
2: Food brings communities together, uh, from planting to harvesting to cooking.
3: In this episode, we'll hear about ongoing food insecurity issues from food scholar Raj Patel and hopeful solutions from families in the Black Creek Community Garden in Toronto. Hey, you know that feeling right before lunchtime? Those untimely rumblings when you can almost feel the enzymes digesting the lining of your stomach? You can probably go ahead and grab a quick bite to eat. Or maybe you can't. I recently learned about a pop-up food pantry held for students at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, who self-identify as food insecure. In one of the United States' wealthiest towns, hundreds of students and their families receive about 150 pounds of food each month. And they're not alone. In April of 2019, a national survey revealed that 45 percent of college students reported they were food insecure. And even though cities like Houston, D.C., San Francisco, and Kansas City are pouring millions into programs to end hunger, the problem is only getting worse. The fact remains, one in nine people in the U.S. struggle with hunger, and more broadly, 10 percent of the world and in a few decades.
4: Those who are unable to eat now will continue to be unable to afford to eat, uh, and at the same time the, the pressures to generate profit from the food industry uh, will be such uh, as to generate the, the, the kinds of massive externality that the food industry has, has generated since its inception. Um, so with a mixture of, of climate change uh, and uh, the, the, the already the, the sort of forces of inequality present in the food system, uh, we're going to see more of the same, uh, yet worse.
3: That's a pretty dire prediction from food scholar Raj Patel, and we'll hear more from him later in the show. But first, we're going to visit a community that presents a more hopeful view of what the future of food may look like. Thanks to our friends at the Canadian Broadcasting Company and their radio show, Ideas, we can tag along with food security expert, Evan Fraser.
1: Driving along the traffic-packed four-lane city streets near Jane and Finch in Toronto, you would never guess that a flourishing eight-acre farm is tucked away just behind a gate.
0: Um, My name is Leticia Diawu and I'm the director at the Black Creek Community Farm. The Black Creek neighborhood is known as the poorest neighborhood in the whole city of Toronto. But then we also have the largest urban agriculture in that same community.
1: The farm is a community project. Volunteers are given plots of land they can cultivate themselves, and volunteers also harvest fresh organic fruits, vegetables, and herbs that are sold at affordable prices.
0: So, growing up in this neighborhood, of course, fresh produce uh, is not one of the the first things that you is easily accessible. There is a fast food in every corner. Right? You can find McDonald's, you can find KFC, Pizza Pizza, Pizza Nova. I can go to Mingsha and get a meal for $3, but it's very greasy rice with greasy chicken, right? So, um, unhealthy food is very cheap and the actual fresh produce including milk that we need are more expensive and not so easily accessible and also if you have parents that are poor of course they're going to go for the things that they put up front in our community in our grocery stores right so if it be mac and cheese that's always on sale right um if it be whatever like all the processed unhealthy foods are on sale and cheaper um, to purchase, and if uh, if families the only jobs they have access to is factory jobs and temp jobs, and there's like over a hundred temp agencies just surrounded this community alone. If that's what people have access to, um, in terms of work, then you can already tell in terms of you know the social determinants of health where you live sort of impacts um, uh, what you eat, which then impacts your overall health as well. So it's no surprise that our community faces multiple um, um, health challenges like diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol.
2: There's strawberries there. There's like interesting um, tomatillo and ground cherries. This is like an edible um, garden bed.
1: The farm isn't just about breaking dependence on cheaper, unhealthier foods by providing fresh, affordable produce. It is also driven by the idea that community gardening builds relationships and connects city dwellers to the land in a profound way.
2: Food brings communities together, uh, from planting, to harvesting, to cooking. Uh, My name is Mildred Agsaway, and I'm a resident here in Black Creek uh, neighborhood. I started the Moms program. What wow. can you see there? Can you see butterflies? I uh-uh. can see butterflies.
1: The Moms program takes place every week of the growing season. Mothers are encouraged to bring their kids to the farm to grow food from seed to harvest.
2: Yeah, well you're building like um, skills in, in the moms and you're building skills in the children. Uh, my name is Marlina and uh, I'm, be- I'm from India and in, I've been here uh, like around eight years. Yeah, like coming here and experiencing in the farm here, like the skills, we can take it anywhere in the world. Wherever you go, you can start growing up your own crops, like own vegetables, your, it may be a garden or a farmyard, or if you have a plot that's just left vacant, you can use it. It's not just here, like anywhere you go, you can do this, I would say. And you'll, you'll just remember it for a lifetime.
1: And it's not just the idea of acquiring tools to be self-sufficient. The community gardeners say the vegetables they grow have an exceptional quality and taste.
2: I'm Maria Pagila, and I came from the Philippines, the northern part of the Philippines, and now I'm living here in Toronto. I've known from my childhood, like, the difference between, like, the the newly picked fruits, the newly picked vegetables. I know the difference. So I want to taste that taste again, and I want to see, like, that plant grow and eat it like f- fresh. I want to feel like that, that uh, I don't know what feeling is that, I'd say joy, like of harvesting and farming. Cause that's what I experienced during my childhood time. I want to instill that one, this one, in the mind of my kids too. I want them to do it too.
1: There's a real emphasis on local and organic at the Black Creek Farm and Mildred, who runs the MOMS program, sees local, urban, organic farming as a key to food security in the future.
2: In terms of um, food security, if we rely on our own um, local production, so then it's not dependent on, like, if the, the fluctuating prices of oil. Yeah, they said, like, um, if the city shuts down and we lose food, it on, we're only able to survive for three days. Imagine if we're able to like um, access our own backyard, green spaces, and produce our own food, we'll be able to like, be self-sufficient in some way.
3: The growing trend of urban community farms, like the one in Black Creek, Toronto, represents a local shift away from reliance on industrial agriculture, and towards a more personal, nurturing relationship with food that's nutritious and accessible. We'll have more in a moment. You're listening to Making Contact. If you missed any of this episode, you can listen on demand at radioproject.org. There, you'll also find out more about our podcast. Visit radioproject.org. This week, we're sharing material from the CBC program, Ideas, and asking, what exactly does the future of food look like? In 50 years, the world population will likely peak, but the demand for food will nearly double. How will we accommodate the demand? To explore that, Evan Fraser sat down with Raj Patel.
4: My name's Raj Patel. I'm the author of Stuffed and Starved, and I'm a research professor at the University of Texas at Austin.
1: I've been reading articles and books by Raj Patel for pretty much my entire career. Probably his best-known book is the one he mentions called Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. And in it, he asks why there is still global hunger in a world with so much abundance. He has degrees from Oxford, the London School of Economics, and Cornell. He has both worked for and protested against the World Bank and the World Trade Organization. By zeroing in on the extremes between the haves and the have-nots, Raj calls for nothing short of a system-wide revolution so we can ensure global food security well into the next century. If global food production remains
4: the same, what challenges do you think we'll be confronting 100 years from now? we'll be confronting the same problems that we have today, uh, where already we live in a world where uh, over 800 million people are... Uh, malnourished and we live in a world where nearly two billion people are overweight. Uh, Those are the trends that we're um, experiencing right now. And with climate change bearing down on us uh, and with the way that we distribute food being through the market, uh, that means that as climate change uh, makes its presence felt yet more forcefully, food prices will rise and those who are unable to eat now will continue to be unable to afford to eat. Uh, and at the same time, the the pressures to generate profit from the food industry uh, will be such uh, as to generate the, the, the kinds of massive externality that the food industry has, has generated since its inception. Um, so with a mixture of, of climate change uh, and uh, the, the the already the, the, the sort of forces of inequality present in the food system, uh, we're going to see more of the same uh, yet worse. So make this real for
1: us in terms of the person living in a typical North American city 100 years from now. What,
4: what, what's their life going to be like? Well, it depends, doesn't it? I mean, if you're rich, um, you will be able to eat uh, whatever it is that money can buy. Uh, and if you are not, then either we will be dependent on uh, cheap calories manufactured through uh, whatever sort of novel technologies there are um, or hunger. And uh, I mean, I, I think that, you know, as, as we get used to the new normal this, this summer um, uh, across the world has been a rather terrifying time. But depending on where you are in North America, you will be striving to be able to access food and cooling uh, and shelter and uh, you know, decent sources of fresh water. At the same time as, again, if you're, if you're wealthy, you'll be doing just fine. So we've been pessimistic for a second. Let's get optimistic, but, but still realistic.
1: Give us a hopeful vision for 100 years from now. What will change in how we produce food,
4: what we eat? What's, what's, the, what's a hopeful future to look like? Well, I mean, again, it it depends on uh, not on how it is that we grow food, but how it is that we distribute it. Um, It depends on the social systems that we find ourselves in. Uh, It's entirely possible that we move towards uh, a diet that's more local and seasonal and uh, that is part of an archipelago of urban and peri-urban farms designed to not only survive climate change, but also to to mitigate it. Um, But that means a a diet that looks rather different from today. It's, It's certainly much less meat heavy. It's much more seasonal and it varies depending on where you are in North America. So
1: if we don't change our ways, you are seeing a future that is fraught with chaos, income inequality, poverty,
4: that sort of thing. To be clear, I'm seeing a future that's much like the present. Uh, I'm seeing a future that uh, looks rather like um, the world of of desperate inequality in which we find ourselves now. Uh, What does the future look like when it's not like this? Um, Well, it, it, it requires a fundamental transformation away from capitalism. And it's worth talking about that, I think. Um, the the way that we distribute food, as I said, is is through the market. Uh, and the market has some very simple rules. you know if, if you're able to afford to eat, you can eat what you like, and if you're not able to afford to eat, you go hungry or you get you know the the sort of cheapest food that's available that's usually obesogenic. A world that isn't like that requires the ending of industrial agriculture and the corporations that uh, profit from it. Let's be clear, there is no such thing as a sustainable industrial agriculture system. Now to back that up, uh, I present as Exhibit A a report that I was pointed to by one of the vice presidents of sustainability at Nestle, and this report was put together by uh, those anarchists at KPMG, uh, and in, uh, in 2012, I believe, KPMG did an analysis of a range of industries and looked, uh, using some very conservative measures, at the footprint of these industries and compared it to the revenue that these industries generated, and so you can tell that these assumptions are very conservative because. Even the oil and gas industry's revenues were much higher than its environmental footprint. But the food industry was different. Even with the most conservative um, uh, assumptions, the food industry's footprint in terms of environmental uh, externalities was 224% of its revenue. Now, for, for for folk who are not familiar with that, that means that although the amount of money churning through the food industry was uh, $80 billion, I believe, um, the footprint of that was 224% of that. And that means that there's no profitable way of running the food industry and doing right by the environment, let alone doing right by society.
1: Okay, so I have to to push you just for a second there. Mm -hmm. Uh, No such thing as healthy industrial agriculture. You just just said that. I, I I need to give you an opportunity
4: to unpack that a little more for us. Right. So if you look at um, the assumptions that uh, KPMG were using, what they were looking at is the environmental footprint, the carbon footprint, uh, looking at nitrous oxide emissions and a range of other externalities that the food industry produces. And if you look at the the 2012 report, and a copy of that's on on my website, you'll find that what that means is that the industry itself is very, very practised at not paying its uh, or not internalizing its full environmental costs. So the footprint of the industrial food uh system is much bigger than the amount of money that passes through that industrial food system. Uh, in other words, the industry is very good at making other people pick up the environmental tab for their profits. So you're you're talking about some pretty major social, political, economic, structural changes.
1: And and these aren't just local changes you're talking about. You're talking about changes at a global scale. So I have to ask
4: you, how realistic is is the vision you're laying out for us? Um, Well, I mean, it it depends on the limits one puts on one's imagination. You might ask, well, all right, what's it going to be like 100 years from now? What are people going to find in the grocery store? And my response is, well, why should we have a grocery store? The the patent for the first supermarket is 101 years old. That's all. And it would be foolish uh, for us not to be able to try to imagine a world that's different from the one we find ourselves in, not only because we do ourselves a disservice by, you know, by being able to imagine the end of the world, but not being able to imagine the end of capitalism, but also because the industrial food system itself is a massive driver of uh, ecological transformation. And uh, so if we can't imagine a world without destroying the foundations of the life on which we depend, um, then we we are very literally going to be uh, rendering not only uh, most of the planet extinct, but ourselves as well.
3: That's author Raj Patel, and you're listening to Making Contact. For more information, visit our website at radioproject.org. Today, we bring you material from the CBC radio show Ideas. Now, back to food security experts Raj Patel and Evan Fraser on capitalism and the future of food.
1: so in in previous lectures i've I've heard you say that most consumers have lost agency and ability to feed themselves. is Is that a fair characterization of of what you've said in the past? and 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 could you reflect on that for us?
4: Well, I mean, I certainly think that when we go into a supermarket, it may feel like, Everything there is made for us. Uh, But in fact, the opposite is the case. We are made to consume the things that are in the supermarket. We have been bullied and marketed to and seduced into thinking that most of the stuff in that supermarket is food, when really it's just, uh, as Michael Pollan puts it, an edible food-like substance. Um, But most of the food in supermarkets uh, that's processed in one way or another, or ultra-processed, Um, is mad. Uh, And, you know, 200, 300, 400 years ago, um, the fact that we'd be opening a plastic container and popping whatever it is that's in there into our mouths uh, would have seemed just absurd and wrong in so many ways uh so insofar as we are not free to eat locally and sustainably uh in ways that respect workers and respect uh the ecology around us most of us can't afford to do that um no matter what country you're in uh the the poorest 20 percent of the population are unable to afford five fresh fruits and vegetables a day uh now that should give us pause right i mean if we're just trying to uh exercise basic agency, basic freedom to be able to eat just fresh fruits and vegetables. And if 20% of twenty uh, percent uh, of us can't afford to do it, that doesn't seem like freedom to me. Uh, and if you are trying to just feed your family well here in North America uh, and you want to be able to afford to, to again, to, to, to do it properly in ways that respect the workers, that respect the soil, that respect uh, the, the, the ecology of which we are part, uh, then, again, it doesn't seem to be possible unless you're earning a great deal of money. Uh, and so if we are only as free as we are, we are rich, uh, then 99% of us really aren't free at all. Raj Patel also makes the case that
1: gender equality goes hand in hand with food security. I happen to
4: think that gender equality is one of the most powerful technologies there is. If you look at how it is that we're going to end malnutrition uh, in the future, let's look at how India has done it. It's not been through whiz-bang new seeds or packaging technology. Um, It's been through things like good sanitation, uh, better access to medical uh, services, water supply, uh, better access to um, non-staple and non-staple crops, um, and most of all, gender equality and sending girls to secondary school. These are powerful technologies for, uh, for ending hunger. Okay, so can you explain for us or unpack for us a little bit more the relationship between
1: gender inequality
4: and agriculture? If one looks at uh, hunger, say, in um, the United States, the part of the population that's most likely to be food insecure are single female-headed households. And that's not surprising. Again, the way that hunger works is because of an an inadequacy, an insufficiency of power to be able to control your diet and the, the world around you. That inequality in power is something that's absolutely the story of patriarchy. If you want to understand how important gender is uh, to thinking about modern agriculture. Um, There's a fantastic paper um, in the Quarterly Review of Economics uh, called On the Origins of Gender uh, Inequality, uh, Women and the Plough. And what some of these colleagues uh, have looked at is around 200 years of economic data looking at gender inequality and looking at wage differentials. Uh, And what they find is that if you strip out things like income levels of countries, One of the things that is a persistent predictor of inequality is whether there's a plough or not um, as part of traditional agriculture. And and you make, well, the question is, well, what has a plough got to do with anything? Well, a plough is a technology that requires an accompanying social technology. A plough doesn't make sense unless you've got private property to be able to plough. And a plough doesn't make sense if you unless you've kicked off the indigenous people who were, who were pastoralists, for example. Um, a plough doesn't make sense unless you've got sedentary agriculture and you're growing not just a, a sort of mix of crops for yourself, but crops for the market. And so a plough accompanies capitalist agriculture hand in glove. And that has everything to do with gender inequality because with the advent of private property, you foreclose other ways of using the land. In England, for example, uh, ways of using the land that predate uh, private property in agriculture are the commons. Uh, On the commons in England, for instance, uh, women were uh, able to run dairy herds and uh, dairying was uh, one of the ways in which uh, women and men's inequality was lessened. But the minute you take the commons out of agriculture, uh, women's uh, uh, possibility of income from agriculture drops away. And so the minute you privatise land for the plough is the minute that uh, women's wage rates plummet. And that's how uh, you see the start of differentials uh, or the exacerbation of differentials in wage rates between women and men. Uh, And so if you want to understand how modern agriculture is implicated in gender inequality, um, look to the plow. In fact, there's a, a saying attributed to the Prophet Muhammad that no sooner does a plow enter the home than does misery as well. So doesn't, um, aren't
1: there ways of, of communally owning equipment that would, that would readdress some of these power
4: imbalances you're talking about? But it's not the you can't blame the plow for gender inequality. The plow is a sign of a social system. Imagine we blew up every plow, we took all our plowshares and turned them back into guns. Um, would that end gender inequality? Of course it wouldn't, because we would still have private property and land. We would still have uh, the chains that reach from the, uh, the the field through the commodity exchanges, uh, through the large industrial agricultural corporations to the supermarkets to the consumer. Uh, the plow isn't the problem. The plow is a sign of a social system. And so you can't fix gender inequality without addressing that social system. The plow is a convenient. Uh, sort of signifier of how that system works um, but we, we can't possibly think of just well you know if we all shared our plow wouldn't everything be awesome because we'd still have all the other accoutrements and other, all the other forces of inequality that the, the modern food system has bequeathed us and that has made us think uh, in the ways that we do
1: so let's let's go from the plow to new technologies technologies that are just now being developed genetically modified organisms precision agriculture drone satellites what what role do those sort of technologies have uh,
4: and how do they play within your vision of the future? Well, I mean, I've I've talked to I I, I know you have as well, Evan, talked to to many farmers who use these um, crops. I'm related to some of them. Um, And it's very interesting to me that, that, for example, farmers who are using Roundup Ready crops, for example, um, find it incredibly useful to use these crops because farmers are paid so abysmally that what Roundup Ready crops allows them to do is have vast areas under cultivation um, and they can pay someone to spray the crops while they go out and get a second job. Uh, And so These crops work very well within a social system in which farmers barely make it, you know, barely make it by. If we were to transform the social system, uh, the crops would have to be rather different. These technologies would have to be rather different. Uh, And uh, if we were to incorporate the full environmental and social costs associated with uh, the spraying of uh, of. of these agricultural chemicals. If we were to incorporate the, the the full social and ecological costs of what it is that accompanies uh, large scale industrial agriculture, then these technologies would not look so efficient. The sort of trick of efficiency is to squeeze away all the, the long and in in, in some cases short term social costs and hide them beneath the magic number of yield. Like these are the bushels that we get out of the ground, uh, and everything else. Uh, you know, the the water costs or the uh, the long term environmental costs or the you know the 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 health costs. All of that is someone else's uh, problem. We, We managed to goose up the yield, isn't that wonderful? Um, so I'm in favour of technology. I love technology. I just am not convinced that the kinds of technology we need are the ones that are going to be patentable. Uh, I think that that some very exciting technology is being um, investigated and explored in India at the moment, where farmers are sharing developing new uh, patterns of um, uh, polyculture uh, and sharing new and developing new, new kinds of seeds and new kinds of patterns of agriculture uh, that don't rely on industrial chemistry uh, but rely instead on very very sophisticated, very scientifically informed um, ways of managing an ecology so that they can not only sequester carbon but manage pest load, uh, increase yields of uh, not just cereal crops but vegetables and uh, fiber crops and uh, crops for, for wood and for medicine as well. So I think you know balancing these very complex equations for the sorts of things we need from the land uh, means uh, turning away from the, the kind of monomania that uh, industrial agriculture enforces on us uh, and to embrace a broader view of technology than, uh, than perhaps our uh, patent lawyers would li- like us to see.
1: So, so just so I understand, are you suggesting we completely
4: abandon our modern agricultural systems in order to thrive into the future? I'm suggesting we abandon the agriculture of the twentieth century. I I think that um, it worked for as long as we lived in uh, a a period where climate change wasn't making itself felt too badly, uh, where we could pump massive amounts of fertilizer into the, uh, you know, uh, and and use fossil fuels to generate fertilizer as if it didn't matter, as if there were no consequences to that. Uh, I think that it would be precipitously, I mean, it would be massively stupid to carry on uh, with the agriculture of the 20, 20th century and the 21st when the climate is very different. And I, I don't think that you're saying we should uh, embrace you know, an agricultural system that's over 100 years old in a world that's that's radically uh, different from the, the one in which it was conceived. Um, so I, I'm, I'm suggesting that we need new ways of Using knowledge and developing knowledge and sharing knowledge for the 21st century. I absolutely think we need technology. I just I'm just not convinced that it's the sort of technology that um, you know seed companies or chemical companies uh, insist that it, might, it must be. Raj Patel, thank you very much. Thank you, Evan.
3: This episode's material was courtesy of the CBC radio show Ideas, produced by Nicola Luck. This is making contact in radioproject.org. The Making Contact team includes Lisa Rudman, Monica Lopez, Salima Hamarani, Anita Johnson, and Dylan Hoyer. I'm Aisha Chowdhury. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.